Hello, friends. Welcome to the Nexus Podcast. I'm your host, James Dice. Each week, I fire questions at the leaders of the smart buildings industry to try to figure out where we're headed and how we can get there faster without all the marketing fluff. I'm pushing my learning to the limit, and I'm so glad to have you here following along. Episode 59 is a conversation with Cisco DeVries, CEO of OmConnect, a startup in the grid interactive building space. We unpacked why all of you listening to this should and eventually will care about virtual power plants and grid interaction, and how OmConnect is enabling it today in California, Australia, and soon Texas. And how could I forget, Cisco candidly shared his experience of being featured on John Oliver's HBO show last week tonight, so don't miss that. Without further ado, please enjoy Nexus Podcast, episode 59. All right. Hello, Cisco. Welcome to the show. Can you introduce yourself? Great to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm Cisco DeVries. I'm the CEO of OmConnect, based in Oakland, California. Awesome. Excited to dig into what OmConnect does. Can we start with a little personal introduction, though? Can you give us a little hit at your, your background? Yeah, I am not your traditional tech uh, or energy CEO. I didn't start off to become uh, an entrepreneur. Instead, I actually was a appointee for President Clinton in the U.S. Department of Energy, among some other roles in his administration back in the glory days of the mid to late 90s. I went to graduate school in public policy at UC Berkeley. So I, I say public policy graduate school is like, if you're just too dorky to handle getting an MBA, that's, that's your choice. Got it. And I was exactly right. And I have wonderful experience and great friends. And I learned a ton of great stuff. But one of the things that you really figure out in all of this is, is that uh, what I, I should say, one of the things that I really figured out about myself and all of this is once I get sort of fixated on a problem, on a, a problem we can solve, it's really hard to get me off of it. Mm. And I think that's kind of what led me down the road to starting companies was one after another, just like looking at a problem, like, hey, how do we solve this? And then at some point with financing figured that there was a way that we could solve this problem that involved the private sector as well. And I just kept going and, and moved on over. And so I spent the last 15 years as uh, in the startup world now. Awesome. Awesome. So one of the things that you know, it sounds like you're well known for is the creation of PACE financing. Can you, can you talk about that? And, you know, what is PACE and kind of where, what's the state of PACE today? Yeah. So PACE stands for property assessed clean energy. And the concept is actually really simple, which is we can let people do improvements, solar or energy efficiency type improvements on their homes or businesses. And instead of having to pay the full upfront cost of that improvement, you can instead pay it over 10 or 20 or even 30 years as a line item on your property tax bill. So it just becomes another element of your property taxes as a specific line item. So you'll see, oh, you know, you're paying a school bond or a sewer fee or whatever, and then there'll be your, your PACE assessment. And so it's a great way in to open up long-term, relatively low-cost financing to a whole swath of people who might not otherwise have access to it, but certainly just to, to line up the fact that energy projects reduce energy bills, but do so you know, modestly over years, 
And now we can try and align those energy savings and energy bill savings with a payment on your property tax bill so that people can end up, you know, not being out of pocket anything, even on an annual basis. So I was really focused on how we deliver financing, how we get people to do solar and energy projects, given the upfront cost issue. And that led me down the road of, of figuring out pace. So the thing to realize about properties as clean energy is that, and I'm, look, I'm proud of the role I played in creating it, is that it's a little bit like inventing a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Like I didn't <laughs> invent peanut butter and I didn't invent jelly. I am just the guy that figured out that makes a yummy sandwich. <laughs> and what I mean by that is the law we use in California to allow pace is actually a hundred years old. And it's been used thousands of times in communities across the state. It's rare to have a community that hasn't used this rule, but mm. it's been for some other things like underground utility districts or paving streets or other things. So all I did was sort of figure out this existing state tool could be used to fight this new battle and then got the very first kind of program up and running and, and kept working on that for, for a number of years. Really cool. So that's how it's kind of spread across the country then is that all these different states probably have that same statute that they can then apply. Really uh, good point. Exactly right. And, and so I think oftentimes in the battle on climate or energy, we get pretty uh, excited about shiny new objects and brand new ways of doing things. And in my experience, it is actually a lot easier to make change by adjusting something old mm. that people already are familiar with than it is to create something that might in theory be better, but is brand new. And that's a tough trade-off. But one of the things that happened with PACE is that because essentially every state had a version of the law that California had, in fact, the concept dates back to the 1700s in Philadelphia. Oh, wow. Um, there's actually a connection to Ben Franklin in there somewhere, which uh, <laughs> is, is pretty cool. Yeah. All we need to do is amend this little rule, and there we go. And now I think, you know, 35, 36 states have adopted PACE legislation, and there's been, you know, I don't know, coming up on $10 billion worth of projects financed. Wow. Really cool. Yeah. So, so obviously, there's something to bring up here. <laughs> that happened in the mainstream media, I, I saw a post by, I think it was Matt Golden, who's a mutual connection of ours, talked about, you know, Pace being on John Oliver. And I, I was just watching it yesterday before this interview and uh, your name popped up on there. So uh, it's been, been quite the interesting week for you. Pace has become a famous topic this week in the US and, and you were part of it. So how's that been? Yeah, well, I think infamous is the word you're looking for, yes. actually. So yeah, John Oliver, one of my uh, favorites, of course, it's got to be your heroes. Yeah. <laughs> picked up on, on a real issue that showed up on Pace, which is that, that there are two problems that have really emerged with Pace financing. And we'll talk about all the good stuff because John didn't, but let's just focus on what, what has gone wrong or where the problems have been. And, and the first problem is that the home improvement industry folks who do home contracting work, it's a pretty lousy industry as far as quality control and customer uh, happiness. And I'll often like, if I was went back when I was doing pace, and it's been a few years since I've been involved in the pace industry, but in front of people, they'd be talking about like, all right, those of you who own a home, how many of you have done a home improvement project? And people would raise their hand. I'm like, okay, for how many of you has that gone awesome? <laughs> yeah. And like everybody's hand goes down, maybe one or two step. I'm like, right. So here's the problem. We are counting on that industry to save the world. Yeah. And it is not up to that challenge right now. 
<laughs> right? So we got to figure out what to do about the fact that the folks doing the work in the homes tend to be mom and pop shops. And some of them really have quality challenges and other things. And, and most of them are great. I mean, this is not to say that there aren't mostly great contractors out there, but this is a tough industry. And it also has some folks that are fraudsters. So we in the pace industry, when I was still in it, and then subsequently having left, didn't do, in some cases, the best job of figuring out how to squash that, how to deal with that. Mm -hmm. At the same time, it's also way bigger than pace. So just assuming that pace can somehow solve that problem is a mistake. There is a role for government to come in and figure out how we're going to regulate and, and improve that industry. There's another problem in that not all the pace companies have necessarily taken all the steps that they should have taken to protect consumers as well. And so I think both of those are real issues. And, and, you know, I think if you look at the overall numbers and say, oh, there's been hundreds of thousands of projects. And frankly, there's only been a, you know, really a handful of terrible outcomes. And, but, you know, and that's on a statistical basis, that's true, but it doesn't stop the fact that if, a grandmother gets bamboozled by some home improvement contractor using pace. That is just a terrible outcome. Yeah. And we, we have to figure out how to resolve that issue. So John Oliver jumped in and I think went down that road pointing out that I was the inventor of pace and that my name is funny and then moving <laughs> on. And, and I think, you know, it's fair to point out where things have gone wrong. What I think is unfair or more challenging here is what are we going to do to fix it and how are we going to fix it fast? Because we don't have a lot of time and climate to just be like, the perfect is the enemy of the good here. So I'm, I'm in favor of zero grandmothers being bamboozled. We need to stop this. But we also need to figure out how to not let the perfect be the enemy of the good and not be moving forward with large scale energy retrofits in homes. And I do think John Oliver missed the boat in really trying to at least acknowledge the challenge that we face in trying to you know deal with these issues. Yeah, I feel like he missed the boat. I feel like it was unfair to you and your name, but I also felt like he missed the boat in terms of like, it was almost like he spent 20 minutes talking about it, but not addressing the fact that climate change is a huge issue and much bigger issue <laughs> for all of us than a couple That's of right. people getting screwed on their homes. Yeah, right. totally. So look, he's a comedian and yeah. um, I guess my name is funny. I'll, I'll talk to my parents about that. Uh, but it, the, the reality though is there's one thing to come back around both the 10 years I spent with Pace, all the work we've done, the challenges have come up is that this is hard. Change is hard. Dealing with climate change is hard. It touches a lot of different parts of people's lives. And we're both going to have to get faster and more nimble, but we're also going to have to get better because we, we can't just keep, we can't make this, you know, I, you know, I was probably a little naive going into Pace about what was going to happen when it scaled. And yeah. we can't make, you know, I'm not going to make that mistake again. And I think in general, we can't make that mistake again. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Well, thanks for uh, sharing your side of your side of things. It's helpful. It's it just for me, I felt like, you know, being as like all of us that are fighting for the clean energy industry, seeing that come out in a negative way, it was just like, well, yeah, we're, we're trying really hard. <laughs> it's not helpful to have, you know, mainstream people like John jumping on it in that way so yeah and you know he could have easily written the other piece which is all the good you know but the other yeah. side of that I, I i'm i'm with you and it is frustrating and i think our the climate warriors spend too much time getting in a circle and shooting at each other yeah for who's got the better climate warrior plan or who made a mistake with what climate effort and i i think we we need to to stop that totally 
All right, let's talk about what you're doing today. So you said it's been a few years since you're working on Pace. So what what is Ohm Connect and and how does it how does it work? Ohm Connect. I so I joined Ohm Connect as CEO a couple of years ago, but the company is seven years old and it was founded by a, a group of just incredibly talented, thoughtful people who I'm thankful every day had both the the fortitude to stick with a really difficult problem um, yeah. and the skills to help try and solve it. And then I'm also thankful that a couple of years ago, as they really solved the problems, they invited me to join them as the CEO. And so I get to claim credit for all their great work. Ohm Connect is actually a, a really cool, fun idea that is incredibly important, but also nearly impossible to pull off. <laughs> okay. And here's what it is. So the idea is that we can actually pay individual residential customers, electric customers, to reduce their energy use during key times when the grid is stressed and dirty and expensive. And so if you get residential utility you know, rate payers, you get residential customers to act together like a symphony and reduce their energy use in their homes a little bit at these key times, the net effect across hundreds of thousands of homes is actually remarkable. It's hundreds of megawatts. And then, you know, now we're going to soon be talking about gigawatts of energy reductions. Mm -hmm. And you can pay them because those energy reductions, the reduction in energy use as measured, not, not just theoretical, but measured at meters, can be sold into the wholesale electricity market as if it were power. So what you can do is turn hundreds of thousands of homes, reducing energy a little bit all together, essentially into a virtual power plant that instead of producing power, reduces the need for power, reduces demand, and takes the place of traditional fossil fuel peaker power plants that would otherwise have to turn on. And really the best part is federal law for 10 years has already required all the wholesale markets to treat demand reduction megawatts exactly the same as supply production megawatts. Hmm. So a megawatt of reduced demand should be paid exactly the same amount of money that a megawatt of supply produced, of, of generated from a natural gas plant. So here is all of a sudden, this is what I love, is like, oh, there are billions of dollars transacting, right? Already that are going essentially from ratepayers paying their bills Mm -hmm. back through the wholesale energy markets on day-to-day -day basis and over to these fossil fuel generators to burn fossil fuels and generate power. And instead, we can start to redirect that flow towards individual customers so they can, in fact, earn the money for the reduction. So it makes everybody their own little power plant. So OhmConnect's slogan is just save energy, get paid. <laughs> and people do. That's the thing. People's minds kind of blow up when you hear about it. It's like, if you reduce energy use a little bit, I will pay you cash money. Yeah. And so that's how Ohm Connect operates. And today we are about 160, 170,000 customers in California. Yeah. Okay. 55,000 customers in Australia and launching cool. in Texas in the next few weeks. Cool. Okay. And altogether, we can reduce, you know, 100 to 200 megawatts of energy at a given time. And that's both useful day to day on the grid, but it's also useful in emergencies when supplies are short. Very cool. We actually have quite the audience in Australia. So you might, you might be hearing from some nexus. There you go. We, yeah, I'm happy to. It's been, we launched in partnership with Origin Energy in Australia a year ago, Okay, almost a year ago, not even. 
And it's been a great partnership. It's the first time we've ever partnered our program side with the utility or an energy incumbent. And we were nervous about it, but I have to say that it's been a, it's been a great partnership. So obviously this is a uh, residential program right now, but the reason I wanted to have you on and unpack this is because, you know, obviously there's a trend towards buildings, commercial buildings as well, eventually interacting with, with the grid providing this kind of the same grid services. So let's zoom in on the, like the consumer side of this real, real quick. So one of the things you told me about the last time we talked was like, if you Google is connect and then stop, it, it auto corrects to a scam. So like, how, how has it been sort of managing the, you know, the consumer side of this and like, you know, convincing people that it's not too good to be true. It just is the way it is. Yeah, well, let, let, let me do it right now, and then I'll just read off some of the. Okay. So I'll, I'll do it right now. I'm gonna read off some of the opportunities. Here it is: Is Ohm Connect? I just started to write it down. Is Ohm Connect legit? Is it worth it? Is it safe? Is it real? Is it a scam? So you got your whole list of, of options: legit, legitimate, <laughs> and, and that is our biggest challenge. Mm-hmm. People, we're a free service that gives you free smart devices for your home and pays you. Right. And so people are like, all right, that's not a thing. What's going on? That's a scam of some kind. What are you really getting at there, buddy? (laughs) And so we spend an enormous amount of time trying to figure out how to get people over that reluctance to trust us and to trust this concept. Mm -hmm. And Look, ultimately, they do have to trust Ohm Connect to work with them and help manage their energy. But that is a lot easier for us to do if they at least trust the concept. And so we're really working on both of those, how to get people to understand how this works. And that is really the number one thing about only about we have people come in to sign up. And a lot of people just kind of bail out because they're like, oh, they get nervous or they're not really sure or whatever. So we've been really trying to figure out how to engage people and you know, that's a place where like, we, we were like, okay, what if we brought in an A-list actress to like help us explain at that moment? And, and uh, so we tried, we're trying that. Like, we're like, okay, how do we help people believe this is actually safe and, and uh, not a scam? Yeah, I went to your website and like the first very prominent video of Kristen Bell pops up and it's like, yeah, I can see that that's just a challenge. And, and this is a challenge that you guys are living right now. I, I think that in the commercial side of things, there are a lot of companies with similar approaches to the market, and they're going to need to approach this same problem, obviously, to a different, you know, a different stakeholder. But I I think it's a huge, like, why should a building owner care about interacting with the grid? I think it's a huge hurdle that not enough people talk about, you know, the DOE just came out with this, you know, roadmap for grid interactive buildings. And I was a little bit like, unenthused with the the actual piece of it around like the perception of of why they should care right and getting over that initial hump of people's attention basically it's a challenge in the commercial space and industrial space it's a challenge in in the residential space and while they're slightly different audiences it's exactly there are very big similarities between them and i think ultimately you know, both a commercial property owner or, or renter or anything else and a, and a residential a customer face the same questions, which is what the hell is this and why should I do it? Why do I trust this? This seems sketchy. 
The second is, oh, is it going to is it going to be an inconvenience or cost me money or is my food going to rot in my fridge or am I not going to be able to run my business when I need to? Like, there's a lot of fear that comes about what this could mean and how you address those things. And then there's a final point, which is, is it worth it? Okay, maybe it's not a scam. I can buy that. And maybe I'm reasonably confident you're not going to let my food rot or you're not going to turn off my you know, kitchen in the middle of the lunch rush at my restaurant or whatever mm-hmm. the, the issue is. But, you know, is the, the juice worth the squeeze, right? Absolutely. And am I going to get paid enough? Is this going to be worthwhile enough? Is it going to be called all the time? How's that going to work? And so you really have to solve all of those issues in order to get anybody to allow their building or home to be used like this. And I think that's where Ohm Connect has actually excelled is it, it really got built from the customer up, which is let's start not with utility programs or government. In fact, there wasn't any of that at the time. And just let's build this concept and see how we get customers to engage Okay, and then start building and go from there. So the customer side first, I think it's pretty unusual in the energy industry. Absolutely. Oh yeah. And, and yeah, especially in the, you know, the contractor world, like all of those are kind of, you know, I have this widget here, right. right. Versus the other way around. So, so how have you guys solved that progression of the, what you just described there? Um, well, I mean, look, it's a work in progress, but the reason I'm here today is that we've solved two of the, we have more or less solved, or at least partly and importantly solved two of the most difficult challenges. The first one is how do you engage a customer and get them to do anything about energy and then do it again and again and again, right? Okay. That's like the white whale of this, of our world. Mm-hmm. And the second is then how do you get all of those tiny little energy savings organized and aggregated and done in a way that can be used and understood and executed in the energy markets as if it were power from the power plant. And that's really where things had come in a couple of, you know, where I came in a couple of years ago is really having finally after five years cracked that nut. On the first side, how do you get consumers? The chief technology officer of the company, who's one of the sort of early days founders, was the CTO at Zynga the large game maker that was essentially invented or at least sort of uh, popularized social gaming words with friends and Farmville and all of those things, if you remember. Okay. So he he was with them from zero to going through going public. Hmm. And they went from, you know, a few thousand people or whatever it was users to, you know, uh, hundreds of millions around the world. And that focus of like, it's not one thing. It is a constant set of how do you, of testing. So we're testing every day. We're, we're testing every week. There's probably hundreds of multivariate tests going on where we're learning how does a customer engage with us how, in terms of sign up, in terms of the sign up flow, in terms of their performance during an event there. How do they decide to get a device and connect it with us? All of those things are things that we test relentlessly. And so when I arrived at the company, I was like, well, what's the secret sauce? No one else in the world has figured out how to do this successfully. And, and, and we have, now that I'm here, can you let me in on the secret? Uh-huh. And they're like, nope, there's no secret. It was just really hard. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it was just, it's like a half a percent here and a percent improvement there. And just mm-hmm. do that year after year after year. And all of a sudden you have something that works, but it's based on the fact that we have enormous amounts of data and we've done 40 million tests 
And out of that, we've learned and, and our algorithms have learned how to do things better and how to predict performance and all those things. But it was um, very much a start with the customer and build up. And that's how we got it done. And I really credit Kadir Lee and, and his team, who Kadir's the CTO, for bringing consumer tech and gaming into this, hmm. which, you know, is a huge part of it. We've created a game. It's kind of fun. Uh, if you win the game, you get paid. <laughs> and the better you get at the game, the more you get paid. And it just so happens that in this, in our game, the game is learning what in your home uses the most energy and what you can reduce conveniently and easily when we need you to. Absolutely. That's so cool. And I, I saw that there's like, there's a hashtag uh, ohm hour and yep. like, you know, so there's some so, sort of social media virality built into it as well. That's right. And we have this great community of people like on Facebook and Instagram that are all chatting about how they do stuff and, and what they do. And, and yeah, it's, been, it's been fun. Really cool. I, I think there's, a, there's at the same time, a lot to like learn, but, the, but in the commercial world, like most of this audience, there's, there's different things that need to be applied in like from jumping to residential to commercial mm -hmm. that we're going to have to, like those people are going to have to crack those nuts. Differently. They are. And, and I mean, to some degree, commercial has always been a little further ahead of residential in this space, right? Because you have larger facilities that can reduce larger amounts, more yeah. predictable ways. It's, it's bespoke. They're one off often, or, or, you know, it's not a mass produced thing like we're doing with residential. The problem on the commercial side though, is not just that we need to get better at scaling commercial and commercial building demand response and DER in general. It's also that the time of day that we need demand response has changed. And so it's less important that it's commercial now. And mm -hmm. I'm not sure people have grokked that totally. No. So you look at California, when do we have our, when do we have our, our peak? When do we have our problems? It's at eight o'clock at night. Wow. Okay. And it's happening because it's when the sun's gone down. So when the sun goes down in California, we lose 10 plus gigawatts of solar or more, right? We lose this enormous resource. And it's at the same time that all these people are getting home, yeah, turning on their air conditioner and doing their dishes and wash, doing their laundry. And the kids have fired up all the you know devices they can fire up and all that's happening. And so what you see is this massive ramp met mostly by natural gas every night. Hmm. And that ramp is, you know, in California is often 15 gigawatts in three hours, which is the equivalent of turning on like almost 20 San Francisco's across wow. the state of California. Wow. And there's no renewable to meet it for the most wow. part. That's okay. almost all met by traditional generation. So with that problem, you have to be able to deal with the eight o'clock at night where you're 65% of your demand is, is residential. You've got to figure out how to solve for residential. And then on the commercial side, there's stuff they can do, but there's generally a reason commercial entities are running at eight o'clock at night, right? Yeah. They're less, that is less flexible commercial demand than you might otherwise have other times. So one of the reasons I went down the residential road and connected to home connect and everything else was because I became pretty convinced that as important as commercial is, residential is much more important because mm -hmm. we have to solve that evening peak when the sun goes down or we're going to blow up the grid. Absolutely. And, and one of the places where the two kind of combine together is like a multi-res, like bigger buildings, with a bunch of apartments. That's right. In there. So which is a great way of, of handling it and something, frankly, I don't think we haven't done yet really much. Okay. We, we, the renters, people who live in the, in the, in, in that building may participate, 
but in terms of like the scale you can get on multifamily is something we're just beginning to explore. Really cool. Really cool. Yeah. There's probably a bunch that can be done there. I'm just thinking about the building I'm in right now that, you know, it's a central HVAC system with local thermostats, obviously local, local zones. And there's probably a ton that can be done there as well. So in terms of the, the climate change aspect of this then, so there's one piece here that you're talking about, which is grid stability, right? Let's, let's not, you know, pull down the grid at 8 p.m. when all those people fire up their air conditioners. The other piece of it, right, is we want to run 24-7 on renewables. So, so that's the way I'm understanding it. This is a, a buildings guy coming into the climate change problem. But do we need big commercial, medium commercial? Do we need all of these to eventually become more flexible in the way that they use electricity to solve both of those problems? Yes. Well, look, ultimately, we need essentially every building to be grid interactive. Okay. And I think that traditionally we've called this demand response, which is, I think, a, an outdated term. And at the very least, it, it means something to old school energy people that doesn't reflect the current state. So let, let's just break that down a little bit for a minute. Yeah. What are we trying to solve? So as you just pointed out, I think really well, is that we're not just trying to solve one single problem here. We're going to solve several problems. So problem number one is the grid in the United States is old. It is fragile. It is in need of a $4 trillion upgrade. And it was designed to be one way, meaning large-scale generation down through transmission to distribution to homes and businesses. Yep. So we have a fundamentally flawed and old and falling apart grid. And I don't think people really understood how serious that problem was until what happened in Texas happened in Texas. In February, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. Where the grid just collapsed. Yeah. And you're like, oh, things are not good. So on top of that, we're adding climate stress, massive heat waves, cold snaps, all this stuff is actually then stressing the grid, which is already stressed and old, et cetera. Now you add on so we have these emergencies. So we should say like we have, you know, heat wave emergency in California and we have blackouts or a cold snap in Texas and blackouts. And we're going to see a lot more of those things. But that's the bigger scale, like, oh my gosh, we're going to have more emergencies. But then there's the day in and day out emergency that happens simply from renewables. As we add more renewables to the grid, it's great. They're cheaper. They're clean. You know, we're all in favor of them, at least both of us are. Everyone um, listening to this, mostly. Yeah, pr probably, unless you're just, you're hate casting. We should have a whole, like, instead of podcasting, like a hate casting. Like, you just <laughs> listen to people that drive you crazy and you totally disagree with. <laughs> yeah. So all of us probably uh, listening to this are, are believers in that. But we have to accept that there are shortcomings of renewables, which is they are intermittent at all times. Wind blows or doesn't blow. Clouds cover uh, over facilities, solar facilities. And we also know they're intermittent every night in solar because the sun goes down and just turns off. Like that's mm -hmm. just a, a planned intermittency. And so because of that, we have to be able to figure out how to adjust demand in real time. And because we can't just adjust supply anymore like we used to. We have uh, a non-flexible intermittent supply. And so therefore we have to create a flexible demand. And that turns the hundred year history of our grid on its head. Yeah. And so what we're trying to do here is rapidly put renewables 
to work and then solve the intermittency issues. And really there's only two ways to solve the intermittency issues and these challenges. One is storage, which we need tons of and is great and getting cheaper, but is nowhere near the scale it needs to be. And two, we have flexible demand. We have the ability for buildings to respond to demand, to the changes in supply. Mm -hmm. And we've got to do both of those things at enormous scale. To date, everybody loves batteries. You can touch a battery, you can hold a battery. It's like, oh, it's a pretty battery. Like it just, it feels like it's a storage unit. It's like, I have a gas tank. Now I have a battery. Like it's a thing that holds (laughs) energy. And it is incredibly appealing from some sort of psychological way. Yeah. Right. The ability to reduce demand is actually way faster and cheaper. And we're actually doing it at a huge scale, but no, you know, it's not cute and cuddly. So we really have to figure out how to get demand response, flexible demand to become cute and cuddly, like storage (laughs) that, or at least visible, but that's what we're trying to solve for. Those are the problems we're facing as with the grid, climate change and renewables. And those are the only two solutions we have besides burning fossil fuels to generate power. And we've just overemphasized storage to date. Or at least I shouldn't say that we've probably emphasized storage plenty. We should probably even do more. We need to emphasize flexible demand at the mm-hmm. same level we're emphasizing storage. Yeah, I feel like there's this whole other piece of the marketplace that's like, I got my diesel generator fired up. You know, they don't want cute and cuddly. They want like, you know, a, a, a different marketing message or branding message. That's right. And you know, <laughs> exactly. Well, yeah, exactly. Well, that's like the Ford F-150. I want a yeah. badass battery. You know, yeah. all right, I want a badass battery too. Let's do it. So a long time ago, I realized that I was done trying to convince people that climate change was real and we should do something. And I'm all about trying to sneak it in. Yeah. Like if you choose to battle climate because you're getting something else you want, uh-huh. great. I don't need to convince you of anything. You're doing what you need to do. Like, so I call it like the kale in the smoothie. that is probably because i'm a dad but like you know when your kids are young and they won't eat anything green you're like how about a smoothie and like i do love smoothies you're like great and then like while they're not looking you're stuffing kale into the blender (laughs) and i'm like this is a perfect metaphor for climate like i don't need them to to believe they want to eat spinach i just need them to eat the spinach. (laughs) yeah absolutely that's awesome hey guys just another quick note from our sponsor nexus labs and then we'll get back to the show This episode is brought to you by Nexus Foundations, our introductory course on the smart buildings industry. If you're new to the industry, this course is for you. If you're an industry vet, but want to understand how technology is changing things, this course is also for you. The alumni are raving about the content, which they say pulls it all together. And they also loved getting to meet the other students on the weekly Zoom calls and in the private chat room. You can find out more about the course at courses.nexuslabs.online. All right, back to the interview. So do I have it right then that like these changes are happening rapidly to the grid in California and then now in Texas, a little bit in New York, but eventually they're going to, it's going to spread throughout the country over to Europe. Like, like these problems have to get solved everywhere. Well, and you're, you already see the fragility of the grid and the number of blackouts across the country. So if you look at the data, the reliability of the grid in general is just, is, is declining pretty dramatically. Mm-hmm. And that's not just a California and Texas thing that is national and international. The issue around, you know, in every state and every place that's chosen some sort of zero carbon grid plan, you know, which is much, if not most of the country, and now much of the sort of, you know, the world in Europe and, and parts of Asia, 
you have to confront this. There's, like I said, there's no way you can have a zero carbon grid and not do flexible demand. You'll, you'll just blow it up. Yeah. So there are places you're seeing more of this for different reasons than others. California being one, it's further ahead on the renewables curve. Mm-hmm. But if you look at New York and just understand for a second, like they've had forever an enormous problem getting generation of any kind down into the city of New York. So the up, everything's upstate or out of state. Mm-hmm. And then there are just a certain number of ways to get those electrons into the city of New York right? and its immediate area. And that's just created enormous problems over the years as well. And it's going to get worse as we lose fossil fuel generation. So they're struggling and scrambling with that. And then add on top of all of that, we're going to electrify all the vehicles. Right. Right. So that's the, like, the, the sneaky little thing at the end of this that we didn't even talk about yet, which is how in the heck are we going to take this fragile grid that's already failing that we're trying to push renewables onto and at the same time assume that everybody's going to plug their car in at night when they get home and it's going to be okay. <laughs> right. 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 You know, I have an electric car. It, it uses a ton of electricity when you're charging. So all of these states everywhere in the country, whether you're into climate or not, you have to start solving for the fact that you have your electrifying vehicles and other things. And then you've got Biden's clean energy plan, which is envisioning a, a transition by 2035, which is important and great. Yeah. But we are not ready. Yeah. I, w- I want to talk about Biden and sort of overall regulation in a minute. Can you, can you talk a little bit about like you guys are one type of virtual power plant, right? That solves this problem that we're talking about. What are the other types? Like, because we're hearing this word virtual power plant, we're hearing this word aggregator a lot more. And I don't know that those terms. So a lot of what I do on Nexus is try to translate acronyms Mm -hmm. and terminology to people and try to try to like demystify some of it. So like what I'm getting a sense of is that there are a bunch of different types of aggregators across the different problems that need to be solved, across the different building types, across the different systems that are being aggregated. You guys are just one of those. Am I thinking about that correctly? Oh, absolutely. And, and I think part of the problem with the virtual power plant term is just that it does mean different things to different people in different ways. And yeah. we ha- it's not like if, if you look it up on the internet, which at one point I did, it's like, well, you can kind of make almost anything into a VPP. Yeah. And, and that's not usually bad because essentially where I come down to on it, and this is a fairly loose definition, but I, I think it's reasonably fair, is just to say, anything we can create that mimics the characteristics of traditional generation mm-hmm. in some important way, but is in fact distributed across lots of locations. It's not centralized. That's kind of what we're getting at with a VPP, right? Yeah. What we're saying is it's not a single power plant, but it operates as a power plant, but it operates as a network of things across a wider area. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people can argue, I'm sure that people will argue that I've missed some important component here. But the reason I say that is we overemphasize the power side. Oh, it's storage. Therefore, it's VPP. Or it's generating. That's what makes it a power plant. Mm -hmm. Well, no, that's not necessarily the case. What matters is can you, in some important ways, mimic the characteristics of traditional supply? Can you dispatch? Can you turn it up and down? Is it controllable? Is it connected to the grid? 
So once we start to talk about VPPs as whether it's storage or solar plus storage or other types of demand reduction efforts and everything else and combine all of those in a way that's dispatchable, predictable, and reliable, that's what a VPP should be. And it can be any combination of those things in any sort of way, but it's gotta be connected into the system, in my opinion. And it's gotta solve for the fact that we can't burn fossil fuels to do that anymore. Totally. And, and one of the pieces that as I'm learning more about this, I had Matt, I mentioned Matt Golden, I had him on the podcast in January. With, with did, energy did you get a did you get a word in edgewise? Not really. <laughs> no, no. I love Matt. He's one of my best friends, but yeah. Me, me too. I mean, I mean, he's not one of my best friends. I barely know him, but he, he talks a lot. He talks really fast. And that's one of the reasons why I'm asking this question right now, because I'm right. still trying to unpack what he said on the episode. I'm actually talking to him next week. I'm excited about it. But uh, what he said was, and he's educated me on this, is that with energy efficiency or with demand response or with you know load flexibility, you have to actually then quantify what the building or you know residents would have used if it weren't for this event, right? And so how, how is that happening today? Like with what you guys do and how's that gonna change? Like, how's that gonna spread across the country? That, that piece of it, what's, what's like, it seems like that's a core piece of making this work. Yes, and Matt is one of the world's experts on this issue. Yeah. And I, I am regularly impressed by the fact that Matt and his team at Recurve, Matt will explain something to me that I won't really understand, but I'll nod along. And then like six months or a year later, I'm like, oh, that's what he meant. And like, yeah. you know, like he was just a, he, he was like, I, I, I couldn't even understand it yet, but he was already there. And, and so mm -hmm. I, I appreciate that uh, more now that, uh, that these things are very complicated and sometimes it takes time for even them, you know, to sink in and, and Matt's often ahead of the game on that. Look, it is one of the great challenges is that we face with anything related to reductions in energy use, whether it's energy efficiency or whether it's demand response, flexible demand, is that what would have happened absent an intervention? Yeah. So generation, whether it's dispatching storage or whether it's a large power plant, or whatever, it's a pretty easy to count, right? Yeah. Some, you know, and we know how to count and kilowatts go out and you say, okay, kilowatts are going out. Yeah. I'll count those. <laughs> And so I, 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 on demand, you don't have that. And so you end up in these sort of, sort of like incredibly convoluted, like tortured circles trying to figure out what would have happened. And, and really what FERC and the grid operators like Kaiso have done is do a, a, a not terrible, but relatively simplistic way of dealing with that, which is they say, okay, everybody has a smart meter. We are going to look at what energy they used in these increments of time, usually 15 minutes over the last few days. And we're going to apply that to create an expected use for that meter, that electric customer for the next day. So that's what we do. We look at your last 10 days. We make a couple of adjustments that they tell us to make related to some weather and other things. Okay. And that becomes your expected energy use for every 15 minute period over the course of the next 24 hours. Okay. So we do that for every one of our 160, whatever thousand users every single day. Okay. 
So it's a lot of data, but it does give you a very specific target. We say, this is the amount I expect you will use in this hour period. And then if we call an event and you use less, I just get paid for the amount that is the difference. Mm-hmm. I get paid the difference between what your expected use was based on the last few days of use and what you actually used at that time. Okay. So it's not about, did your thermostat go on or off? Like we may have turned your thermostat setting but that doesn't, what matters in the end, which is important, is that what matters in the end is that we are actually reading the meter and seeing what happened. We are not making any other assumptions. Got it. Now, what Matt, and, and that's really the way that basically this works. It is an imperfect methodology. What Matt and Recurve have done is apply a much more rigorous, but still kind of open source model to figuring out using kind of a, a version of control groups, what would have happened. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, and so you put all that together and then you start to get a really true picture of exactly how much energy was reduced relative to what would have happened absent the intervention. And so we're getting better at this, but that's, that's how that is measured today across most of the country. And, and we're hoping that we'll see some improvements in it over time. Yeah. And the way that Matt described it to me was that when you aggregate a ton of these together, you actually have pretty close accuracy as a whole. Whereas you might have one or two buildings in there that are, are, are less accurate. Yeah, we have a, I mean, we, we know a percentage of our customers will not reduce. Mm, okay. We don't know which ones. Yeah. <laughs> Here. Uh, but that's the law of large numbers. Like we talked about earlier, right? Like, so this is, this is working in our favor, which is I've become, we, I should say, Ohm Connect has become exceptionally good at predicting exactly how many megawatts we will reduce not because I know exactly what your home will reduce, but because yeah. I know what a thousand homes like yours are going to do. And that becomes incredibly predictable. Really cool. Okay, we only have a couple of minutes left. I wanna ask you about the public policy side of this because you're the you're a public policy expert. Reading some of your blogs and reading some of the stuff that you've written online, it seems like there's still stuff to do on the policy side that will help make this process easier, not only for you guys, but for all the other people doing similar things. Can you, can you talk a little bit about where we're at on that and like where we're headed? And I know that FERC order 2222 is part of this, but uh, I'm fuzzy on it. So maybe you can clear, clear it up for me. Yeah, I think there's an entire podcast dedicated Probably. to discussing yeah. 2222 and, and uh, I will not attempt to replicate that. Uh, look, I, what, what I'll say is that in order for flexible demand to really achieve gigawatt scale around the country, mm-hmm. we need predictable, reliable MNV. We need to know how to measure the amount of savings and we need everyone to count the same way. And we don't need to be perfect, meaning I don't, you know, we might be wrong a little bit here or there, but we got to agree how we're going to count it mm-hmm. because that's how you can invest in building essentially virtual power plants. So like if I build a natural gas power plant, and I know how much it's going to generate. And I know how much that generation is going to get paid in the market based on my historical information. I can make some choices and I can finance it and do those things. With flexible demand, even though we call ourselves a VPP and we operate in the same way, we have nowhere near the level of certainty as to how that market's going to treat us or how it's mm-hmm. going to get counted. So you can imagine, say, I would like to build, I am in the process in California, we have financed and are building a 550 megawatt virtual power plant called Resi Station. It is will be one of the largest virtual power plants in the world. We're underway with it now. The problem 
is that the rules we operate under in California and around the country change all the time. <laughs> They're often opaque, meaning I don't even know what the rule is exactly. <laughs> and different agencies, regulatory entities, and others count things different ways. So I'm in this constant kind of like adjustment, like, oh, do I care? You know, I, I can give you a bunch of examples about it, but it's, it's really just, it's, it's frustrating, but also it means that it scares away investment and it scares away scale. So what we really want nationally is a common understanding of how we are going to, how we're going to do this everywhere. And you can get into, there's a lot of detail. It gets really complicated. We mentioned you know, one piece of it about how, you know, the accounting takes place and how recurves working on it, but there's like a hundred of those examples. Okay. And so we really need to like step back and kind of just do this for real and mm -hmm. figure it out and, and, and make some agreement that we're going to stick with an answer for a few years mm -hmm. uh, and let us operate. And then we can make some changes, but I just don't, you know, we can't have this constant evolution. And what FERC 2222 says essentially and I'm overgeneralizing is this is here to stay. DERs, the, you know, the, all, all our acronyms, <laughs> all these acronyms are here to stay. They yeah. are going to be treated appropriately over time in the wholesale markets. It doesn't say exactly how, right? That's a regulatory process still to come. Mm -hmm. But what it says is a very clear signal that this is the future of the grid. Yeah. And that's important because it just makes sure that everybody's okay. We got to solve for this. We have to do it. Yeah. And so it doesn't actually, nothing's been done exactly, but it gives people confidence it will be. And that allows people like me to kind of make some bets in terms of expansion, and other things, but we still have a lot to solve. Not, not just nationally and whatever, but just in California. I mean, as I say, there's like, we have five different ways they count our demand reduction, our reductions, depending on which agency we're talking to and which part of which agency. And, and, and we just got to get past that. Yeah. And I can just imagine the tension it puts, the risk it puts on you guys. You're the platform with the customers on one side that you're trying to gamify and keep happy. And then this uncertain financial cash flow stream on the other side, that is a tough place to be in. And it puts, you know, there's just a ton of uncertainty that should be removed for this to happen. So yeah, but I'll, we just went through this and I is exactly right, which is it's not just hard for us and our and people who want to invest in the things we're building and finance it, but it's hard for our customers because they don't really understand any of this and, and they can't, right? This is a complicated mess. I barely yeah. understand it. It's my job. Yeah. Um, so one of the changes that happened, broadly speaking, over the last couple of years in California, which is actually a, a, an appropriate change, but just to give you a sense of it is it used to be under the rules that we were measured, that they really cared, the state really cared about how much a, the largest reduction a user could make in a month. Okay. Right. Because you're kind of looking at an emergency response, demand response, right? So you're saying, okay, if we really have a critical moment, how much can that user reduce? Mm -hmm. And that becomes the value for that user, right? Yeah. It's like, okay, the max reduction they achieve in a discrete period of time is their maximum reduction. And that is how we will value the total. Okay. So if you're Ohm Connect talking to our customers, we don't explain government regulations to them about how this works. What we say is we give you an incentive, the game to learn to do that. Yes. So we would do things like, I will give you $5 if you flip your circuit breaker once this month, just turn everything off. <laughs> I'll give you five extra dollars. People are like, sweet. So we had like 20,000 people flip their circuit breakers in a month. You know, awesome. now that's not necessarily a replicable demand response model. That is super inconvenient. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. But we're like, okay, those are the rules. And then 
you know, the states that are, you know, that's actually not what we care about because what we care about is every day you being available and engaged in the grid, not just in an emergency. So we're moving towards an average. What is the average reduction that each user does? Yeah. Right. Well, now that's probably a good change overall. But now, of course, the entire game has to change. Yeah. Because now I'm incentivizing a very different set of things. And I can't explain that to people. I just have to be like, hey, we're changing it so that, you know, now you make more money doing this thing than that thing. We do these things and people learn. And then they flip out. And we just had this. You can go and look online. Like we just made some of these changes a couple months ago. And people are like, you're taking away all my money. And I'm like, well, actually, we're just asking you to do something differently. But they've gotten good at playing the game and making money one way. And then we changed it. And they got mad. And I get that. And I get why we need to change it. But this is this gets this issue of stability and the fact that our customers now need to be retrained yeah. to do an entirely, a, a substantially different approach to energy reductions, which then says, instead of circuit bigger flipping, I'm giving you smart plugs and thermostats because what I want is consistent reductions of at least a small amount all the time. Wow. And so now that's why all of a sudden we've gone from one set of things to, hey, I will give you an S thermostat. Got it. Okay. Wow, that's fascinating. And then and the, and the gamification just gets more intense because now you're like, yeah. okay, I'm going to retrain you to do this. So thing. now I'm like, okay, they're like, hey, I used, uh, we gave them an event. They're like, I only got paid X. I used to get paid Y. This new thing sucks that you've done. Yeah. They're like, well, yeah, but you're playing wrong now. We've changed the rules. <laughs> right, right. And it wasn't us to change the rules, by the way. Right. It was, yeah. But I'm, you know, and so then I'm writing blog. I, I just, like, published, like a month ago, I, I published a blog post. Like, here's how we get paid. Yeah. Here's why we've changed this stuff. I'm so, I'm sorry, but also I can't pay you for things that I don't get paid for. That's not how this right. works. Right. All right, Cisco. Well, this has been a blast. I learned a lot. This is part two of my grid education after talking to Matt a couple of months ago. So thanks so much and, and good luck with, with building that uh, two-sided messy platform there. And uh, for all of you John Oliver fans, I'll also be working on my gentrification of jazz business model. <laughs> so stay tuned. Perfect. Perfect. All right. Thanks. Thanks. All right, friends, thanks for listening to this episode of the Nexus Podcast. For more episodes like this and to get the weekly Nexus newsletter, which, by the way, readers have said is the best way to stay up to date on the future of the smart building industry, please subscribe at nexuslabs.online. You can find the show notes for this conversation there as well. Have a great day.